Please turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 18, which can be found in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 241. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 16. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants." As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertaking, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. For he went out and came in before them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, good morning and welcome again to McLean Presbyterian. My name is James Forsyth, and it's great to have you with us here in the sanctuary, down in our fellowship hall, or even online. Last week, we looked at the famous story of David and Goliath as we continue in our series on the life of David. This week, we come to see what, what happened next, what happened after that great victory. Let's bow our heads and pray and then go to the Lord. Father, last week we were reminded that you don't call us to be the hero of the story, but you have given us Jesus as the hero of the story. And I pray, Lord, that now as we come to this next passage, what happened next, that you would draw near to us, that you would be our teacher. And I I pray especially, Lord, that this morning you would uh, minister amongst us by your Spirit so that we might each see our own need of the gospel in, in a specific way, and that the gospel then might be applied to the ways we struggle ourselves in a similarly specific way. So be with us and guide us by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it turns out that uh, killing a giant is a great career move, okay? 
Uh, you should make it one of your annual goals. I guarantee pull it off and you will get ahead. Uh, just look at verse 6 of our text. The Israelite army is making their way home from battle and everywhere that they stop for gas, we hear that a parade breaks out. There is jubilant singing and dancing and joy. And we get the chorus in verse 7. You see the theme of their song? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. After slaying the giant, David is at the center of it all. Everyone's delighted, uh, everyone that is, except from Saul. Look at verse 8 with me. Saul was angry. And this saying, this chorus, this song displeased him. Now understand, Saul should be the happiest guy in the room because David's success was his success. The victory David won for Israel was then transferred to Saul, who is the king of Israel. David's victory is his victory and victory has been won and a party's in full swing. He should be the happiest guy in the room. But as one commentator says, Saul is like the elder brother at the prodigal's party. Meaning he's full of bitterness. He's full of resentment. How come this wee runt is getting all the glory? At first, he's just depressed. But then as we read through our text, his malaise turns murderous. Key idea for our morning, envy, jealousy. Envy will kill your soul. Envy will kill your soul. Now, envy isn't a flaw that we talk about that much, right? And it's one that we admit to even less. And yet it's a disease that's common to all of us. All of us struggle with this condition when we see someone else doing well, and then suddenly we feel discontent. So maybe it's spouse envy. Why can't, why can't your spouse be as thoughtful as theirs? Uh, maybe it's uh, kid envy. Why can't my kids be better behaved? Right? Or why don't my kids get better grades? Or maybe it's work envy. A colleague does well and you think, hey, I'm the one who really deserves the raise. Or maybe it's achievement envy or money envy or house envy or car envy or vacation Envy or sex, envy or health, envy or body, envy or weight, envy or beauty, envy or just general togetherness, envy. There is no limit to the number of ways that we will be envious of each other. But friends, this is an important topic because envy, while we don't talk about it that much, has the power to take you out. Envy took Saul out. Envy is what took Lucifer out of heaven and what took Adam and Eve out of the garden. So if we're not careful, you better believe it has the power to take us out as well. So let's examine this topic from this text. Three things that were helpful to me as I studied, and I hope they'll be helpful to you as well. We're going to see first the fuel of envy, secondly the impact of envy, and then last the antidote to Envy, the fuel, the impact, the antidote. Let's dive in together, starting with the fuel of envy. And very simply, the answer is comparison. Comparison is the fuel of envy. Envy is fueled by comparison. Just look at verse 8 in our text. They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me, he says, they have ascribed thousands. Saul is complaining. What more can David have but the kingdom? See, David can't just look at David and be glad that the victory is won. 
uh, Saul has to start comparing David to himself. Saul starts to make this situation all about him, and as soon as he starts to compare, he starts to spiral down. Now, that's how envy works. It's fueled, it gets energy, it gets life, it gets momentum from the comparison to other people. So, a friend gets married and we wonder why we haven't got married, or a colleague has success and we resent the praise that they're getting, or, you know, a classmate gets the new iPhone and suddenly you feel yours is lame, right? (laughs) Two days ago it was great, now it's terrible. Envy starts to kick in. Don't know if any of you saw the story in the Washington Post this week about the woman from New Hampshire who won $560 million in the lottery last month. Well, interestingly, she hasn't claimed the money. Isn't that strange? Like, if I win $560 million, the first thing I do is claim the money. The second thing I do is tithe. You hear me? Okay. Amen. Um, Why hasn't she claimed the money? Well, she hasn't claimed the money because she doesn't want her identity to become public. She's asking a judge uh, to allow her to keep uh, the cash but remain anonymous. Her attorney wrote this. She wishes the freedom to walk into a grocery store or attend public events without being known or targeted as the winner of a half billion dollars. And she's onto something, isn't she? Because she, she knows that when people find out she's won all this money, they're not just going to be happy for her. <laughs> oh, great. That's great news. Yeah? They're going to start to compare themselves to her. They're going to start to resent her. She knows that people will envy. And even with $560 million, her quality of life will decline. Now, you and I may or may not envy this woman. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But the point is, everybody envies someone. All of us envy someone. Maybe it is a friend. Maybe it's a colleague. Maybe it's a a family member. Maybe it's someone uh, that you know from your church. Someone you know from the gym. Someone even that you just see on social media. Awkward question. Who are you envious of? Who do you compare yourself to? We don't like to answer that question. Because when we answer it, we feel petty. We feel small. Well, good news. We're all petty and small. (laughs) We all envy someone. Who is it that you envy? Be bold enough to answer in a specific way. That in a moment, we might apply the gospel specifically there. So, envy, we've said, it's fueled by comparison. And when we compare, you know, compare ourselves to others, then like King Saul, we start to spiral down. The fuel of envy. Well, where does the spiral take us? Let's look at our second point, the impact of envy. We've seen the fuel, let's look at the, the impact. Now, from this text, we see any number of, of ways in which envy impacts not only Saul, but those around him. I've picked out four, but I encourage you to study this text yourself later on this afternoon and see what others you would add to the list. But here's at least four ways that envy impacts in this text. First, it's very clear The envy makes you unhappy with the life that you have. Your your life, the actual life that you live, envy makes you unhappy with the life that you have. You know Saul? Saul had everything going for him. 
Saul had more money, sex, and power than any Israelite had ever had. And yet, as he compares himself to David, he still feels like he doesn't have enough. And that's how envy works. Bertrand Russell, the 20th century philosopher, who was certainly no friend of God, said that envy was one of the most potent causes of unhappiness. One of those potent causes of unhappiness. It makes us dissatisfied. It makes us discontent. It makes us, no matter what we have, always want more. And so in the process, it robs us of joy and it kills all gratitude and it stops us from being thankful. All this combines to make you unhappy with the life that you have. Instead of marveling at all that God has given us, the fantastic lives that he's given us to live, we just nitpick and compare ourselves to others and end up feeling dissatisfied. But friends, don't we know, don't don't we really know, don't don't you know deep down there that the next thing isn't really going to make you happy? You know, losing 10 pounds isn't really going to make you happy. Again, another 10 grand isn't really going to make you happy. Even getting 560 million is apparently not going to make you happy. Whatever we're looking for is still won't be enough because no matter what your life is like, if you're envious, it makes you dissatisfied with the life that you have. Point one. Second impact we see of this envy in, in this text of, of envy is, yeah, it makes you unhappy with the life you have, but it also makes you unhappy when other people rejoice. It makes you unhappy when other people rejoice. So, you know, our party, it, it, our passage, sorry, it, it, it's a party, and everyone's invited to the party, but Saul is miserable because he doesn't have, have the glory. And that's what envy does. It makes us begrudge other people. We can't celebrate their success because their success just makes us feel sorry for ourselves. Their success becomes a reason for mourning in our life. So we hear good news, good news of an engagement, of a promotion, of a birth, of some sort of success, and we start to find ourselves mourning while other people rejoice. Now, you know, the the converse is also true. Um, talk about my smallness and my pettiness. Um, not only do we mourn when others rejoice, but we'll also rejoice when they mourn. So, your ex gets dumped. Okay. Your beautiful friend puts on 10 pounds. The Patriots lose the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. And we smile, right? <laughs> it's just good news, right? We just, you know, it just like made me happy. I don't, I'm no Eagles fan, but I'm glad that they lost, right? What's going on there, right? What's going on there? You know, it's, it's this temptation we have to think, well, they had it coming. They got what they deserve. Now, the problem is when we're dealing with more serious things, that this kind of comparison where we'll mourn when they celebrate and then celebrate when they mourn, and makes us very small men and women. Makes us very small men and women who relate everything to ourselves. And we don't want to be those kind of people. We don't want to be petty when others do well and then celebrate when they fail. That's not the kind of people that we want to be. We want to be people who weep with those who weep, who rejoice with those who rejoice. But envy stops us from doing that. That's the second thing we see. It makes you unhappy with the life you have and it makes you unhappy when others rejoice. Third, and this is a huge understatement, envy ruins relationships. 
Very clear point from our text. Envy ruins relationships. We can imagine the scene in our mind. Saul has been struggling, uh, raving in his own house. David has been brought in to play the kind of mood music to, to calm him down. And Saul is stewing, verse 10, with a weapon in his hand. Then comes verse 11. You see it there? Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. Envy makes Saul so angry that he wants David dead. Now, friends, I I trust you've not resorted to those lengths, okay? Um, But all of us still struggle with with the same principle, that envy will ruin relationships. Trust me. Um, If you have a friend you're jealous of, you won't be friends for long. If you have a friend that you're jealous of, you will not be friends for long. Why? Because at first, you'll just find yourself kind of quietly disparaging them. You'll find it easy to critique, find fault, become cynical. And then after quietly disparaging them, you'll, you'll at least just subtly distance yourself from them, like Saul does, sending David out to be commander of the armies. No longer in his house, but out there somewhere. That, that's what we start to do. Um, and it might not be some big fight, there might not be some big blowout, but you just, you just stop, you, know, you no longer call. You no longer reach out in this same way. You allow things to drift. And no doubt you'll justify it saying, well, it's actually because of these reasons, but actually envy will have done its work. It's this, a thing you can look back on in your life and see how envy destroyed a relationship. Is it a thing that's happening maybe even, even now? We want to stop envy in its tracks because we might save not just our relationship, but certainly our own happiness as well. That's the third thing. Fourth thing, the impact of envy. Makes you unhappy with the life you have, makes you uh, unhappy when others rejoice, it ruins relationships. And then, fourthly, um, envy just makes you crazy. Envy makes you a crazy person. Right? And again, we see that in Saul. Saul has been turning his anger over and over in his head. And then comes verse 10. Did your eyebrows raise when when this verse was read? A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house. Now, at first, these words sound strange, but they're they're maybe not as as weird as they they first sound. Because Romans 1 tells us that if we continue to reject God... If we continue to rebel against God, if we continue to go our own way, he allows us to go our own way. He hands us over to our own desires. And that's what's happened here. The spirit of the Lord has has left because Saul has rejected him. And so sin has come upon him, got a hold of him. God has allowed him to go his own way. We could say Dr. Jekyll has become Mr. Hyde. Saul has lost all perspective. He has lost all reason. Sin, envy, has consumed him. Now, you know, this might have been the most challenging thing to me as I studied this text. It was just to remember, friends, remember, sin is not just something you do. It becomes who you are. Sin isn't just something you do, kind of like some external activities, kind of like a to-do list. It has internal consequences. It it becomes who you are. So as C.S. Lewis famously wrote, if you fill your life with grumbling, you become a grumble. (laughs) 
It's no longer just something you do. It becomes who you are. It's in your very nature. It's in your very um, disposition to complain about things. Likewise, if you, if you fill your life with lies, you, you become a liar. It's no longer just something you do, but it's, it's becoming who you are. You can tell a lie without blinking. Uh, your conscience becomes hard, so you don't even feel bad about it. You even start to believe some of the lies that you've been telling. Well, it's the same with envy. If you fill your life with envy, you become, as it were, envy. You find yourself turning the same things, the same people, over and over in your mind. You find yourself giving in, and it starts to take over. You lose perspective. You lose reason. It consumes you. It's no longer just something you do. It's becoming who you are. Envy can make you lose yourself. Envy makes you crazy. Well, we think of those four things as a spectrum, perhaps, from... uh, not from small to significant, but from significant to severe. Where would you place yourself on that, on that spectrum? Do you find yourself becoming unhappy with the life that you have as you look at other people? Or perhaps you have taken the next step. Perhaps you find yourself unhappy when, when others rejoice. Perhaps you're the step further. Perhaps you can identify in the past or even in the present how envy is ruining a relationship. Or perhaps this morning, you just feel that weight of knowing that yeah, you've lost all perspective. Envy's making you crazy. It's taking over. Well, let's turn to our final point to see how the gospel can restore our sanity. The fuel of envy, the impact of envy, and then lastly, the antidote to envy. Look at verses 1 through 4. Jonathan, Jonathan is the antidote that we're looking for. Now, who is Jonathan? Jonathan is Saul's son. So King Saul has a son. His name is Jonathan, and Jonathan is is, is heir to the throne. So if anyone should be jealous of David, jealous of God's anointed king, surely Jonathan's the one. Because if David's to be the new king, then Jonathan's own future, Jonathan's own power, Jonathan's own legacy, those are the things that are on the line. So, so what do you do if you're an up-and-coming king and your throne is threatened? What do you do? You take him out, right? You have him sleep with the fishes, right? That's what you do. Uh, you don't do what Jonathan does for David, Well, what does Jonathan do for David? Let's see how he's our antidote by looking at these two things. First, verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. He takes off his robe and he gives it to David. Now, the thing we have to understand here is that in these days, your robe was a symbol of your position. It was symbolic of your position. And so Jonathan would wear robes that were reserved for the heir to the throne. And so you see the significance. When he takes this robe off and hands it to David, he's saying, I recognize that these belong to you. I recognize that you're God's anointed king. I recognize that the throne belongs to you. I recognize that you have the rights to what once belonged to me. Second thing Jonathan does, still in verse 4. Jonathan gave his robe to David and his armor and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, while your robe represented your position, it's easy for us to understand that in those days, your armor represented your power. Your armor represented your power. So again, this is a very symbolic act where 
Jonathan is, is handing over his armor to David, handing it over and thus making himself vulnerable to David. He is saying, not only do I recognize that you are the king, I recognize that and submit my life to you. I submit my life to you. Now, why does this make him the antidote to envy? What's all this talk of, you know, robes and swords? Two things. Jonathan is the antidote to envy for two reasons. First, Jonathan is the antidote to envy because he shows us what to do with the true king. Jonathan shows us what to do with the true king. Jonathan hands over his position. Jonathan hands over his power and he steps off the throne, trusting his life to David, God's anointed king. And if we don't want envy to rule our lives, then we must do the same. Step off the throne of your life. Trust your life to another. To Jesus, David's descendant, the true king. And do you see, follow with me, how this uh, is the cure to envy. Because when we're tempted to be envious, and none of us become immune, in that, in that moment we say, God, I'm stepping off the throne. I'm going to trust you with my life. Because I recognize, Lord, that I'm not in charge of my life. You're in charge of my life. And I recognize that I don't even know what's best for me. But you know what's best for me. And I recognize that if there's anything I need, you'll provide it. And if you haven't provided it, that means I don't need it. And I recognize that I don't even care about myself as much as you care about me. So I may want, think I want that thing, but Lord, I... I I step off the throne. I trust you with my life. This momentary decision of faith to arrest you when you look at your colleague, when you look at your friend, when you look at Facebook, to bring God into the equation, to live life before his face, to look at him in the moment of envy and hand ourselves over to him changes everything. We start to say, Lord, you know what? I'm t- I, I think I want that thing, but actually, I want the life that you've given me. I'm happy with the life I have. And it's the only life you've given me, so I'm going to enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I'm actually going to start, I, I'm going to rejoice when others rejoice. Because you've, you've commanded me to love others like myself, so when something good happens to them, it's kind of like it happened to me as well. <laughs> and I'm definitely not going to let envy ruin my relationships. How sad, how sad is that? And, you know, I'm not going to let this thing drive me crazy because I'm handing myself over to God. I take off my robe. I give you my sword. I step off my throne and I trust you with my life. How can we do this? How can we take off uh, the robe? How can we take off the sword? How can we trust another? It takes us to our second and final thing. Jonathan is the antidote to envy, not just because he shows us what to do with the true king, but because he also shows us what the true king has done. Jonathan shows us what the true king has done. We are called to be like Jonathan, but you will never be like him until you first realize that you already have a Jonathan. What does Jesus, the true king, do? He gives up his position. He steps off the throne of of heaven itself that he might come down earth. 
He gives up his power, becoming vulnerable, vulnerable even unto death. And so Christ comes, and you know, he doesn't slay tens of thousands. And he doesn't even slay thousands. But he does slay one himself on our behalf. Jonathan is the one who gives up his earthly robes and makes himself vulnerable to death. But Jesus is the one who gives up his heavenly robes and actually gives his life. That's what the message of the cross is about. We who have become so enmeshed in sin that we have become sin, well, there Christ becomes sin on our behalf. On the cross, he became what we've become, that he might exchange it for life. And you know what? You can trust your life to someone like that. You can trust your life to someone like that. When you place your life in his hands, the very scars that you see prove to you that he loves you. And so whatever that thing of envy is, whatever it is, the relationship envy, the material envy, whatever kind of envy it is, we trust him with our lives and we find that no matter what you do or do not have, he is enough. Your soul has been created with such an immense capacity that everything in the world cannot fill it. And yet, the value of Christ is so surpassing that if you have nothing but him, he'll be enough. He'll be enough. Jonathan is the antidote for envy because he shows us what to do with the true king, but also because he shows us what the true king has done. The fuel, the impact, the antidote. So, you know, killing a giant is a difficult goal, okay? Uh, if I put it on my list this week, I'm not exactly sure how, what to do next, right? But a life without envy? Well, that's possible for us in Christ. One of the things I love about the gospel is that it makes us the men and women we long to be when we trust God with our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to be gentle when it comes to this topic of envy because the experience of envy is hard and it's often so sad. As we look out on the world, sure, sometimes we're after crass, superficial things, but sometimes, Lord, we envy because there are deep longings of our hearts that we feel have gone unmet. And so, Lord, we, we come uh, being thoughtful and mindful of, of the struggles that we experience in this world and grateful that you understand them. But Lord, as gentle as we want to be, we also want to be ferocious because we want to apply the truth of the gospel, the, the antidote, the cure that we need to this particular sin to understand, Lord, that we can trust our lives to you and can be happy in these lives. Uh, we can hand over to you what you've already done for us. And so would the presence of Jesus, his very presence that sweetens all of our conditions. Be our reality this morning, we ask in his perfect name. Amen.